Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> hey, if you have a Bible, turn to Nehemiah. We're uh, in chapter 5. If you don't know where Nehemiah is, just open to the middle of the Bible. You're going to find the book of Psalms. Hang a hard left, not too hard a left, and just keep going to you hit the book of Nehemiah. And we've been studying this really uh, small, short book in the Old Testament because really what we've been trying to do over the last month and a half is we've been trying to explore our own lives as leaders. We've been trying to explore our own lives as children of God and the purpose actually of our lives. So what we've been talking about is that our lives uh, has vision, that the Holy Spirit has uniquely equipped you. He's uniquely made you and he's actually rescued you from death to life to actually live out God's vision for your life. And if we are here, what we've been talking about is how do we get to that place and how do we live that out? Which, one, if you have no desire to have any vision for your life, what a wasted time this has been, like almost two months. If you're exploring some of that and you're still feeling like, I'm not sure I understand God's vision for my life, don't give up. Actually, those are really healthy questions Go back to listen to some of the other sermons that we've been talking about. How do you discover that? Some of the tips along the way. But if you're beginning to get a little bit of a picture of this for your own life, what we talked about last week is that you've got to have courage if you're going to go on that journey. Because as you go on this journey, you're going to face things that are going to work against God's vision for your life in your life. In fact, you're going to come against some pretty ugly stuff because we live in a pretty ugly world. And you're going to come against injustice. And last week we saw how Nehemiah, uh, everything he was trying to do was threatened by injustice. And how he fought against that injustice, that he used his power and he used his influence. He also used his position to really battle against this social injustice that was happening in the city of Jerusalem that he was laboring to rebuild. And what we're going to talk about today is you need more than just courage you also need character because anytime you're going to face injustice out there, first you have to deal with injustice in here. So we're going to talk about that today. You ready? All right, y'all bored this morning? You with me? All right, let's just talk about it. So John's going to come up and read for us. He doesn't know this, but I switched back to the original language of Hebrew. If you'll read it to us in Hebrew, John, he's a smart guy. He can do it. All right. Actually, this is Nehemiah chapter 5, and he's going to be starting in verse 14. All right. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes... Okay, let's start there. Okay, yeah. so let, let's, let me remind you what's happened is that in the city of Jerusalem, Nehemiah had gone to rebuild the wall. Artaxerxes, which was the king of the Syrian empire, had given him authority to go back to Jerusalem and be the chief overseer of the rebuilding of this city as the refugees were coming back from captivity. So when he went back, he realized that there were a lot of people taking advantage of this bad situation. In fact, there were a lot of people that were finding the poor and they were exploiting the poor, their own people, to the degree that the poor were having to sell their land, even their children into slavery, just to keep their heads above water and not starve to death. So Nehemiah dealt with that. He dealt with the leaders that were, that were prospering from that. And now he's talking about his own household. So go ahead. When I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brother ate the food allotted to the governor. 
But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on, the, on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Okay, stay right there, John. Uh, because we're going to read it again. Because here's what happens. If you're like me, you just rolled in, some of you have kids, and your kids are still in your brain, you just sat down, and you didn't hear a word he just said, right? Are you with me? So let's just slowly go through it, because there's stuff in here that I really want you to hear, because this is going to mess with you, all right? So John, start again from the beginning. Stop. I'm going to completely interrupt you a lot, all right? Hang on. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. Okay, stop. So what had happened was Nehemiah went to rebuild the wall, and all of a sudden he found himself in political power. He'd been assigned now to be the governor. He was the governor over the city of Jerusalem. Just a little tidbit. And let, let's hear how he handled being governor. Go ahead. Until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brother ate the food allotted to the governor. Okay, stop there. As governor, Nehemiah knew that he had rights as governor. And one of the rights, like our governor, when he becomes governor, he gets to move into the governor's mansion. Have you all seen the governor's mansions? Just a few miles from here? Amazing. And so he had rights too. And one of his rights were the people were to supply all the food for his table. Like all the food, all the wine, he should never want for anything. And the first thing, first thing Nehemiah did was said, I'm not going to take that. Now think about this for a minute. He looked at his people and he goes, y'all are poor, you're farmers, and there, is, there are many burdens on you, and you're trying to get back on your feet. I'm not going to make my table another requirement of what you've got to do. Pretty amazing. Keep going. Uh, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food, to food and wine. Okay, so Nehemiah said, hey, there was a precedent set for me. Everybody expected me to do this, not just food, but I took nearly a pound of silver a week from the people that was allotted to the governor. That was his pay. Nehemiah said, I can do it. You don't have to pay me anything. Keep your silver to yourself. Pretty amazing. Gets better. Keep going. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. Okay, stop. Not only did the governor get all this stuff, everybody that worked for the governor felt privileged and when they felt privileged, they got to move among the people and demand that they give them stuff too. If you worked for the governor's house, that meant you'd get free stuff. And Nehemiah put a stop to all that. Not only did he say, you're not getting anything from my table, I'm not going to require you to give anything to anybody that works for me. Big deal? Okay, y'all tracking? Just feel free to sleep on the back row. All right, keep going. <laughs> Geeking out on this stuff. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself... We're going to talk about that in a minute. Out of reverence for God, his actions were de deeply connected to God's vision for his life. Keep going. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. 
we did not acquire any land. Wait a minute. What does that mean? We were working on the wall and we didn't acquire any land. Why did he put that in here? Because the common practice of that time was when you're in a position of power, you leverage your position of power to increase your wealth. Why? Because you're not going to always be in a position of power. So you better get what you can get while the getting is good. And Nehemiah said, no, we're not doing that. We're not going to do anything that leverages our authority to disadvantage them for our advantage. Big deal? The city had never seen anything like this before. Keep going. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Okay, stop, because what is that? He had 150, some theologians would say that number is actually closer to 500 people a day ate at Nehemiah's table. Have you ever had a house guest at your house? Like just one. And here's what happened was, Nehemiah wasn't just rebuilding the wall. He knew he had to rebuild the nation. So he was repatriating the people of Jerusalem. He was bringing all these people that were slaves, refugees, all back to the city. Now, what do people that were slaves prior to coming back to the city, what do they have? Nothing. And so when they came into the city, Nehemiah had to create a soup kitchen for all the people that are coming back to Jerusalem. In fact, Hundreds and hundreds of people were staying with Nehemiah and eating at his table. It's a big deal. Keep going. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. Okay, stop. So he's killing one ox. How many sheep? Six choice sheep. Choice sheep. All right, I don't know what that is, but let's just, it's choice. All right, and then how many chickens? Some. Some. I'm going to say a lot, all right? This was the beginning of (laughs) Chick-fil-A. God's business. All right. So he is slaughtering animals every day just to feed hundreds of people at his table. Now, wait a minute. Let's stop for a second. Because how much is Nehemiah getting paid? All together now. And who's providing the food? And where's Nehemiah getting the money to provide the food? Whoa. Out of his own pocket. Keep going because the next line is even better. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. Okay, stop. (laughs) Nehemiah didn't have to serve wine with all that food. And it says wine of all kinds. Look at the generosity of Nehemiah. It's not just I'm going to feed you choice sheep. I'm also going to feed you wine. And I'm going to give you a choice between Chardonnay and Malot. I'm going to give you a choice. Have you tried the Malbecs? They're unbelievable. At Nehemiah's table. Why is he doing that? Why is he treating former slaves that had nothing, people that are coming back to start a new life in Jerusalem, why didn't he just give them soup and a cup of water? That's not what he did. He fed them with sheep. He fed them with oxen. He fed them with poultry. And he fed them with all kinds of wines. Do you think that was expensive to be that extravagant? I don't know. Maybe. I, I haven't gone back and studied the cost, but yes. Would it be expensive to you? Yes, okay, keep going. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. Still didn't, still didn't ask for it. Because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Thanks, John. You're amazing. Standing up here for all that long. I mean, think about this for a minute. That, that Nehemiah, if you go back and study what we studied last week, 
Uh, some theologians believe that uh, the injustice that was being uh, committed against the people by, ca- by causing them to pay interest on loans, that Nehemiah and his men were a part of that. That when they came back to Jerusalem, they actually were participating in the common practices until Nehemiah had an awakening, and so this is unfair. This is really hurting people. So not only did he fight against injustice in society, he decided that he was going to radically fight against injustice in his own home. And here's what began to happen in his life, because he began to realize that he was in Jerusalem not to be a burden, he was there to lift burdens. That he wasn't there to profit, he was there to help those people prosper. And he wasn't there to gain advantage, he was there to use his advantage for those that had no advantage. He, was there for, he wasn't there for his success, he was there for the success of others. And it cost him almost everything he had. You like that? Honestly, do you like it? Do you like that about Nehemiah? Like this is where we kind of break the church mold. We can talk back. Y'all did it with DeCarlos a few weeks ago. You can do it with me. Did you, did you like that? Did, did you like the fact that Nehemiah is really disadvantaging himself for the advantage of those that have been disadvantaged? Do you like that about his character? Yeah. yeah. Do you like that he is not only being generous, but he is being generous in such a way that it's extravagant? Do you like that? I like it. You know, what's amazing is that he used his position, he used his power, he used his education, he used his possessions, he used his gifts, he even used his relationships to actually use them for other people. That's called character. That's called character. And if you're going to go on this journey of grasping God's vision for your life, you don't just need courage, you also need profound character. What you're seeing in Nehemiah, you also need in you. In Philippians chapter 2, he, this is what Paul says in Philippians. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any, any encouragement at all from your relationship with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in your life, if you have any tenderness or any compassion, then Paul says, I want to challenge you to move your life in this direction. And what direction is that? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In fact, rather, in humility, value others more important than yourself. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. He even goes on to say, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. <laughs> Let's just pause and think about this for a minute. What we're seeing in Nehemiah, Paul is saying that that kind of character of I'll disadvantage myself for the advantage of other people, that I'm going le- to leverage all my good for your good, I'm going to consider you more important than myself, that this is the way of those of us that follow Christ. This is the journey that we walk. This is the character that we're developing. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus himself said, let me describe to you the last day before the throne of God. And he goes into this elaborate description of us standing at the judgment seat of Christ. And listen to what he says. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, 
Those of you who are blessed by my Father take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And he says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Does that sound like Nehemiah? Yes. And listen to what he says. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invited you in and needed clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And this is what Jesus said. I tell you the truth. Whenever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done to me. The very nature of those who are walking into the kingdom of God are people that are rich in the character that love other people more than themselves. So we're going to finish church early because all i got to do is go do, go do it. End of sermon. Just go do it. Man, this is where I almost left the church when I first became a Christian. Because church felt like every time we get to this point, I would just hear somebody go, do better, do more, be better, be more. Because everything I just said to you leading up to that point, it just felt like, oh, I know, I'm worthless. I'm not a Nehemiah. I just give up. And then church becomes this heavy place because this is where the preacher goes, you know what? I know I'm going to leverage all your shame against you. You don't pray enough. True? A couple of you. What do we say here? I don't know. <laughs> you don't read your Bible enough. True? That's right. And you don't give enough, right? Uh-oh. Wait a minute. We're talking about money now. You don't care enough. True. And this is where guilt and shame comes in because here's the thing that I'm going to fight for today, that, that your life would be marked by profound character. The question is, where does it come from? Many of us think it comes from the place of shame and guilt. That if I just feel horrible enough about myself that if I feel guilty enough that I'm not as good a person as I want to be, I want my life to be marked by Nehemiah. I want to go, I, when I go to my grave, I, I want my funeral to be marked by people telling stories like Nehemiah, like, I'm just not good enough. But if I look in the mirror and I'm so ashamed of myself, then that shame is going to beat me up and make me good enough. Guilt and shame that keeps saying that I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to belong. I'm not good enough to be loved. See, the problem that's in my life is, let me just let the cat out of the bag, I'm never going to be good enough. I'm sorry. As your pastor, I confess to you, I am never going to be good enough. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, Dr. Benjamin Bickman, who wrote this book called Why We Get Sick. Have you all read this book? It's, it's, just a, it's just a complete shame-creating podcast. Anyway, because he talks about all the things that we do that make us sick, and he talks about, you know, how insulin plays such a huge part in our health, right, Doc? And all this stuff, and, 
And literally the last 10 minutes of the podcast, he's talking about, you know what would change your life? Is if you would just go for a walk after dinner. Dinner is typically your heaviest meal. If you would just go for even just a mild 20-minute walk after dinner, it would kick your body's processes in, and it would allow it to process insulin a lot healthier, and then you would be healthier. And I'm listening to him, and I go, man, that makes a great argument. You know what? That's it. I'm going to start walking after dinner. So that night I came home and I've got my, you know, my shoes out. I'm going to go for a walk after dinner. And we're keeping our grandkids right now. So, you know, we fed everybody. And then, you know, we dealt with all the tears and fears and, you know, all that stuff. And we finally got everybody to bed. There was no way I was going for a walk after all that. <laughs> and I plopped down on the couch and here's the first thought of my mind. I should be going for a walk right now. Shoulds are killers. They're killers. Do you know that <laughs> I was reading this week about, because uh, I'd met somebody the other day that, uh, that is involved in the fitness industry, and we were talking about how that whole industry works, and I did some research. Do you know that 70% of gym memberships never get used? 70%. What's happening? Let's think about it just for a minute. What's happening is there was a moment of should that happened in that person's life to where they hooked their bank account up to their shoulds. And that should makes them pay that bill every month. But what's reality? Reality is the very thing that I want to be is the thing that I'm not. The very thing that I don't want to be is the thing that I want to be. So let's just, let's just pause for a moment because when we look at Scripture, we, we see a bunch of shoulds. When we look at like the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments are beautiful because the Ten Commandments are a reflection of the holiness of God. The Ten Commandments are actually this beautiful picture of the wholeness of who we were made to be. I mean, we weren't made to be thieves. We were made to be givers. It's just this beautiful picture of humanity. But the problem with the Ten Commandments, and there's a problem with the Ten Commandments, the problem is us. You know, in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it says, the law was added so that trespasses may increase. What? If you give me shoulds, what's going to happen is the very opposite of that should. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, it says, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore the fruit of death. And what it's saying is in our brokenness, our inconsistency that when the law came, what it aroused was my very passions for the very thing it said not to do. Tell me not to do something, and what it does, it awakens my desire to do it. In Romans 8, 3, it says, For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. So the law came in, and it added to my sins. The law increased my passions for the thing that I shouldn't want. And then finally, what the law reveals is that it has no power to actually transform me to have character. Let me explain. We've used this example here before. Um, let's say that we're going to pass a law here at Midtown. And the law is, is that none of you uh, are allowed to have hiccups. Okay? It is against the law. Midtown law, no hiccups. If you have hiccups, you're a lawbreaker. Will that rule keep you from getting hiccups? No, it only displays that you're a lawbreaker. And the same with the Ten Commandments. I was coming across this uh, writer, Paul Zale. He's a theologian. Um, he's 
written several brilliant books on grace and the gospel. And he says, what the law requires is exactly what men and women need in order to be wise, happy, and secure. But the law cannot pull this off. The problem with the law is not its substance. The problem with the law is its instrumentality. The law is not up to the task it sets for itself. If the law says jump, I sit. If it says run, I walk. If it says honor your father and your mother, I move to Portland. (laughs) If it says do not covet, I spend all day on the home shopping channel. Only grace, God's one-way love, can get us out of this jam. God's unilateral forgiveness takes away our guilt and our anxiety about not being able to measure up. And as a bonus, grace produces the fruits of love that the law couldn't. The one-way love of grace is the essence of any lasting transformation that takes place in the human experience. Shame and and guilt are never going to give you this. In fact, here's what's crazy, is those are the things that Jesus came to take away. Through the cross and through the resurrection, he removed my shame and guilt. And isn't it strange the church for generations the very thing that Christ has caused us to shed is actually the thing that they're picking up and putting back on to try to motivate us to have character. And I'm saying to you, it's a lie. Here's the truth. The only way that you're going to produce this kind of character, the only way you're going to be able to experience this kind of character, the only way that we're going to be able to experience in a healthy, vibrant, living way the life of Nehemiah is through the life of Christ. It's the whole gospel. I mean, if you go and study Scripture... How do we forgive? We draw from the well and the reservoir of the forgiveness that's been given to us. He who has been forgiven much, forgives much. How do we be generous? We draw from the generosity of our Father. When we understand that all we have has been given to us, and we understand how generous He is, we draw from that reservoir to be givers. (laughs) Why do we pray? We talked about this several weeks ago because he's praying first. Why are we devoted? Because he's devoted to us first. Why do we worship? Because we're joining the song of him singing over us. Everything is initiated by him first. And everything in our lives, even our character, draws from him first and then flows. Why do we love? Because we were first loved by him. And that's how we live a life of love. Not him being our example, him being our source of everything that we're giving out. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, it says when we become Christians, something transpires in our lives. It says that you have the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit moves into your life, guess what? He brings love, he brings joy, he brings peace, he brings kindness, he brings goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all the fruits of the Holy Spirit moving into your house. In other words, I don't have to go and find those things. Those things are already mine because Christ has moved into my house. You with me? Y'all tracking with me? And it says at the very end of this, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If those things already exist in me, Jesus is saying don't go and manufacture those things. Don't go find character from somebody. Character has come and found you. Now stay in step with this. So a few weeks ago, we gathered all our pastors in our movement and their wives, and we had a dance party. I know. (laughs) Those of you that grew up Baptist are going, pastor's dancing. Yes, we did. And uh, 
we had Ian Meeks come in and teach us ballroom dancing. And what's really amazing uh, is how horrible we all are as dancers. I did, as pastors, I guess we just have no rhythm. And we're stepping, Renee and I were stepping on each other's toes. And, but when Ian would take anybody, he would make them look like a pro because he's a professional dancer. And he starts dancing, and they're just in his, you know, his magic, <laughs> whatever it is. And that's what the Holy Spirit does with us. The Holy Spirit comes as a master dancer, and he says, just come and dance with me. It's like when my daughter was young. She didn't know how to dance, but I would put her on my shoes. And all she had to do was just stay with me. Just stay with me. I'll do all the steps. And what are the steps of the Holy Spirit? What are the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the Spirit is saying, stay in step with me. These are all the things that I'm bringing into your life. Stay in step with me. You don't have to become like Nehemiah. I'm like Nehemiah, and I'm bringing that into your life. Stay in step with me. It's not shame and guilt. It's actually freedom that sets me free to have character. Shame can only change me so far, but love, on the other hand, transforms me from the inside out. Now I'm free to be honest. Now I'm free to belong. Now I'm free to love. I'm actually free to love. And do you know that in Ephesians, this is going to blow your mind. You want your life to be transformed? <clears throat> it's not joining a gym. It's not becoming super religious. It's actually letting something happen to you. It says right here in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is saying, I beg with God. I plead with God out of his glorious riches that he would give you strength to do something. And what is he praying that you would have strength to do? He's saying, I'm praying that you will have strength together as the body of Christ to grasp how much God loves you. That's it. He goes on to say that his love is wide and long and high and deep. But he says, if you can begin to simply grasp a hold of that which has already grasped a hold of you, he says, you will be filled to the measure of all the goodness of God. What does that mean? Looks a lot like Nehemiah. That's why we pray. We don't pray to move God. We pray to listen to his love song over us. That's why we spend time in the Word, not so that we can become pious, righteous people. We spend time in the Word so that we can remember how many things are yes in Jesus Christ. His love promises to me. We are obedient, not so that we can become good people, but so that we can experience His faithfulness when we follow in the steps of Him. And we worship. We don't have time this morning to say this. We worship because it heals us. Because it restores us back to what we were made for. That's the fullness of God, is that we're loved. And here's the beautiful picture of what Jesus does. He is the greater Nehemiah when He comes in our lives. Jesus came into our lives not to be a burden, but to lift our burdens. Jesus came into our lives not to profit, but to help us prosper. Jesus came into our lives not to gain advantage, but to put down all his advantages to bring advantage to us. He wasn't there for his success. He actually went to the cross for your success. That's the life that's in you. And if that's the life that's in you, Here's the crazy thing. That's already in you. You don't have to go find it. 
this life of Christ that is full of character, greater than Nehemiah, is pulsating in you. And the Holy Spirit is saying, come on, dance. Come on, dance with me. And what does that look like? To let yourself be loved. Let yourself be loved. And when you do that, it's going to mess you up. I promise you. Because then you're going to start loving the grossest people in unbelievable ways. Because why? Because you are your father's child. And you can't escape that. And you will reflect your father. So we've been keeping our grandkids this week. Pray for us. It's going to take years of recovery. No, it's been great. We've loved every minute of it. And my little uh, five-year-old grandson loves motorcycles. He loves my motorcycles. And here's what's hilarious is that I uh, bought him a motorcycle shirt. And uh, I gave it to him, and he was over the moon. I don't think he's taken it off since I've given it to him. He didn't bathe in it, but thank God. But, you know, but he's had this. And yesterday we went to the zoo, and he, he tried on my motorcycle helmet yesterday morning, and uh, he decided he was just going to keep wearing it. So we're going to the zoo, and he's in the car seat, in the back seat, and he's talking to me, but I can't hear him through my motorcycle helmet that he's sitting in our back seat in his car seat with a motorcycle helmet on his head. Why? Why? I mean, think about it for a minute. He's, he's looking, Papa. I'm going to be like Papa. This is Papa's motorcycle helmet. And I'm, I'm going to tell you something. Guys, if you will let yourself be loved by that, like that, if you will dare to be loved like that, you're, you're going to reflect the very character of the Father that has taken up residence in you by the Holy Spirit. And here's what's crazy, just how close it is. Um, some of you right now are going, I'm not doing that. Meaning, that's not what my life looks like right now. That's what repentance is. If right now you're being convicted that my, not, my life is not reflecting that I'm my, my father's child, that's where we stop and we receive repentance as a gift of the Holy Spirit. One of the fruits that he gives us is repentance. Is that we realize, ah, I've, I've run away from this. And I've sought to be loved by other things that have no life. And I've let them sink their poison inside of me. And you know what the remedy is? Repentance. Repentance isn't fresh forgiveness. Jesus already dealt with your sin. Repentance is returning back to the sanity of the relationship that we have with our Father. And then what happens when we repent? We see a Father who welcomes us home, embraces us, and starts the cycle of pouring His love out on us all over again. It was St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, who said, love God and do as you please. Let that little hand grenade sit there in your heart for a minute, all right? So I'm going to pause, and I'm going to leave some repentance. Uh, but I just want you to know I have an agenda. And my agenda is that, that today, that today you would say, I'm going to live and learn to live in the radical love of Christ for me. Even if it completely wrecks my life and reorients what my vision is for my whole life. That's my prayer for you today. Because here's what I've seen. I've seen when just one person decides to do that, it's explosive. 
And in this season where we don't know what's happening with the church, we don't know what's happening with culture, we don't know what's happening in our world, politically, socially, spiritually, everything seems to be up in the air and up for grabs. I'll tell you this, not for us. Lord, we ask that We ask, Father, that you'd give us grace, Holy Spirit, and that we would be eager to repent of the ways that we have not dealt with the injustice in our own hearts, where we have found it so much easier to point out the injustice in other people and not deal with it with us. Our lack of sacrifice for others, our lack of love for others over ourselves, our lack of seeing other people more important than ourselves, our lack of compassion. Lord, we just repent of our selfishness, our self-centeredness, how we have forgotten so easily that the possessions that we have, uh, you have given us for the vision that you've given us, that the position that you've given us is for the vision that you've given us. Lord, the, the power that you've given us, the gifts you've given us, the relationships that you've given us, is all a part of this beautiful vision that you're asking us to grasp. Lord, we've forgotten that so easily, and we pray that you forgive us for that. Restore us, Lord, in our hearts back to the reality that we are deeply loved by you. And with that love from you, Lord, inspire us now to also step up and let your character shine through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.